little to no sense. It is the show where you can expect the unexpected. This is Nonsensical Talk on the air and in the cloud. Those crazy hosts will talk about anything and everything. And now, from their home studios in Middle Tennessee, here is your hosts, Alan Robertson and Joey Smith. All right, Joey. Here we go. Yes, sir. Season Two, show number one. January, Happy New Year. Happy, happy New Year. It almost makes me think of the Happy, Happy Joy's Joy song from uh, Ren and Stimpy Days. So, uh, boy, have we got a treat for y'all today and uh, for the month of uh, January. Uh, we actually have uh, two interviews or conversations that we had in two different locations. Uh, one was down in Beverly. Beverly, Kentucky, mm-hmm. just north of Herndon. Just north or south of, as they would say, south of Hopkinsville. <laughs> For you folks in California, just look where Hopkinsville is and Herndon is. They're known places. Yes. They don't have NBA teams yet. <laughs> the, but, but they may. But they may. Yes. Um, but you're, you're going to want to listen to this here. Uh, one of the most famous uh prophets uh, uh such as we we know of Nostradamus uh mm-hmm. as uh, 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 uh being a prophet uh, that is well known worldwide well America's best known prop prophet is Edgar Casey born in Hopkinsville Kentucky yes. and we're going to the place today and talking to folks of where he went to school the schoolhouse is still there in Beverly we interview uh, county historian William Turner. Uh, he tells us the stories of it. You're not going to want to miss this, folks. We also go to the... We go to the Museum of Historic uh, Hopkinsville in Christian County, uh, the uh, the museum up there with Alyssa Keller. Uh, she's also going to talk a little bit about Edgar Casey. So uh, William Turner is going to kind of talk about the early years uh, down there in Beverly. He's got uh, his farm actually in Beverly, uh, has the uh, the schoolhouse that Joy was mentioning uh, there, Beverly Academy. Uh, so that thing's been around since the 18, uh, 1800s, uh, and uh, it's 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 an old school, and they really did a good job renovating that uh, to kind of bring it back to what it what it was. Uh, and you're going to enjoy that. Uh, you're going to want to go to our website and look at the pictures uh, that was taken inside of the school. Uh, so when Joy and I are sitting down with Mr. Turner, you're gonna, you're gonna, we're actually gonna see inside the school, but there's more than just what's behind the camera. Uh, so you're gonna want to go check that out. Um, and so here's here's the good part of this: mm-hmm. you don't have to wait any longer. We're about to go through there magically. Yes. Right now. Right now, and enjoy. Well, we're here today at Beverly Academy, just north of Herndon, Kentucky with Mr. William Turner, my teacher in history from Hopkinsville Community College and uh, county historian. And Mr. Turner, anything that you'd like to tell us about Beverly Academy and its connection with Edgar Casey and history? Well, Joy, first of all, it's a pleasure to welcome you to here. Thank you. And. Uh, I hope that my voice will come through all right. It's not what it used to be. <clears throat> but we are in Beverly Academy, 
the old school of Edgar Casey at Beverly, uh, old settlement, the old stores just south of us here. There's a post office there. And this was the name of the community. And uh, all these little communities had one-room country schools. This one was built in 1889 as a subscription school. Uh, the farmers donated money, and the money was taken to build a building and hire a teacher and conduct a school. The school lasted 20 years, and it was during that time that Edgar Casey was uh, a student here. We restored the building about 20 years ago, and it's in need of some more repair. It needs it frequently. But uh, it had served as a corn crib, as a tenant house, as a tool shed. And in its last days before the school was brought back, it was a storage place for artifacts for the Penroy Lear Museum. Mm -hmm. It was full. Back in 1999, one of my students, after your time, Joey, mm -hmm. um, Chris Gilkey, yes, sir. I enlisted his help to uh, begin to work on restoring the school. It took two years. We, first of all, had to move everything out and find other places for and then start on the building. Now, in the years that it was a tenant house, it had been subdivided into three rooms. We were in the back. We are now in what was the back room, the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Then there's a partition running this way, and there were two bedrooms, and tenants lived here. So we got all that uh, partition work torn out and started restoring it. Uh, it had wallpaper on it, and we took the wallpaper off and found the original sealed uh, timbers in it. But most of all, we found behind us the original chalkboard uh, of the school. Nice. And in those days, they used wood for a chalkboard. Mm -hmm. And went to the paint store and bought a paint that was especially used for uh, blackboard work. So we found that paint at the uh, hardware store and painted it. And so you can write with chalk on that wood and then just rubbed it off. You see how the names of children mm -hmm. there from uh, a Amish or Mennonite group who came here, mm -hmm. and they won their names on the <laughs> chalkboard. And <clears throat> so Chris and I worked on the building for two years, and in uh, the fall of 2001, just before 9-11, we had a dedication and over 300 people were here. And we dedicated the building to the memory of Edward Casey as he had attended school here. And uh, one of our neighbors supplied fresh apples for everybody, which we thought was <laughs> my nice thing to do. So everyone had an apple. <clears throat> we had uh, a program uh, to launch the restoration work. And since that time, the museum in town Mm -hmm. has conducted classes here for students. Students come by school bus, and they uh, have a class, have classes, have lessons taught, and they bring their sack lunch with them and have lunch. We usually have a Porter John close by, and they make a day of it. And they really seem to like spending the day in a country school. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And so we also have put up uh, color lamps on each side and in the center, and occasionally have events here at night <clears throat> where people will come and, and we'll have a supper and a program. And that's a, a great atmosphere with the cola lamps lighted. The um, walls have maps on them and they're relief maps. Now this school mm -hmm. didn't have relief maps originally, but these maps are of that time period and the relief map shows the mountains and the valleys, mm -hmm. as you can run your hand over them and, and see it work. And we found an old schoolmaster's desk, uh, and uh, the ARE, which is Virginia Beach, the Education Foundation, yes, sir. provided the money for that desk mm -hmm. uh, that we have used here. 
and we have an old tattered American flag that the Woodman of the World gave us. And uh, you'll notice the alphabet above the chalkboard, which was typical in every school. And also the picture of Washington. Many people have asked why we don't have Lincoln in here. Well, this school operated in South Christian County in the 20 years, 30 years, 40 years after the Civil War. Yeah. You wouldn't find a picture of Lincoln here. Mm -hmm. This was Southern territory. Yeah. And then over on the far wall to the left, you'll see some pictures at the top is a lithograph of President Grover Cleveland and his cabinet. And then below are three men. The one on the left is James A. McKenzie. And I'll come back and tell you a story on him in a minute. He was a U.S. congressman at the time the school opened. In the middle is Adley Stevenson, the grandfather of the man some people today remember. Uh, Adley Stevenson, the elder, was... Uh, uh, Secretary was Postmaster General. And then the man on the right was John D. Clardy, who was a U.S. congressman from this district at the time the school was in operation. Now back to James A. McKenzie, a real interesting story. You know, you've heard the story about Edgar and his daddy having an argument over his study. And Edgar asked his daddy if he couldn't take a nap one night on top of the spelling book. So they put the spelling book under the pillow, and when Edgar had taken the nap over a few minutes, he awakened, and he was able to spell the word cabin, which he had hung up on, plus he was able to spell all the other words in the book. Now, some days after that, Edgar's father, Squire Les Casey, met on the street in Hopkinsville, Congressman James McKenzie. Well, James McKenzie had heard about Squire Casey's son who could uh, go to sleep on a book, who could do all sorts of unusual things. And so, uh, Quinine Jim, as we call the congressman, said to Les, Edgar's father, here's a copy of the speech I made on the tariff about getting rid of Quinine, tariff against to get rid of the tariff from quinine. Mm -hmm. Quinine was used in the 1870s and 80s as a principal medicine for children in, in uh, eradicating chills. And there was a high tariff on quinine because it was imported from South America. Well, there's a great hue and cry throughout the community all over of an attempt to get Congress to remove the tariff on quinine because it made it so high. So James A. McKenzie, who was a cousin of Alvin Barkley, by the way, was also a noted orator. And McKenzie made a speech of an hour before Congress on why they should remove the tariff of quinine. And he was successful. It was removed. And he became known that speech, and thus the moniker Quinine Jim was adopted to his name. Everybody knew him as Quinine Jim McKenzie. And his folks lived in Flat Lake. Okay. South of here, southwest of here. And so uh, Congressman McKenzie gave the speech to Squire Casey and said, see if your boy can commit this to memory and recite it. So Squire went home, talked to the boy about the speech, and let him read it over. And then two nights before a big gathering here at Beverly Academy of the neighborhood, Squire Casey read the speech to Edgar. Edgar listened with his photographic memory. He recalled every word. And so on the night of the big gathering here at Beverly Academy, Edgar stood here on the platform and recited that speech to the crowd assembled. Everyone was just spellbound that a boy of maybe in the eighth grade could recite a speech of an hour. Oh, goodness. And so that added to his notoriety and made him much better known. And it is one of those things that we talk about 
as far as this building is concerned because he recited that speech in this room. And so Edgar went to third grade. That was all. Yeah. He attended this school from 1890 to 1893 and had no more formal schooling. Uh, the school continued for another 17 years. At that time, the school was located up on the corner of the farm. Mm -hmm. My grandfather bought it in 1916 after he had lost a tenant house by fire and rolled it on logs over here to this site to use as a, a tenant house and later on a store to build it. And so since 2001, we've had groups of people come from everywhere. In fact, when we have the Edgar Casey Seminar in March each year, we bring them out here on a bus, and I tell them the story of the schoolhouse as it relates to the life of Edgar Casey. That is awesome. I tell you, I've, uh, I've been reading some of your uh some of your material, uh, and actually a lot of it, uh, for the last couple of uh, months since uh, Joy and I decided that Edgar Casey was going to be mm -hmm. uh, who we were going to focus on on our January podcast, mm -hmm. and it's just been one of those things where we we you you tell the stories of uh, him uh, growing up. Uh, and as a matter of fact, he didn't grow up too far from just south of here. His right. as a matter of fact, you're a member of the church that he attended, right? Uh, and behind that was the schoolhouse before mm -hmm. he came to the academy. Mm -hmm. Love the stories that you were telling about that, and yeah. uh, so that, that's some that's some really great information. And he, he was born on the 18th of March, 1877, on a farm, two farms south of here. The house is gone, but uh, he was born in a little cottage on that farm that his mother had inherited, which his daddy promptly lost when you bought Beverly's store and sold the farm, put the money in Beverly's store, lost that. And then they moved to Hopkinsville. And that's a whole other chapter in the yes, life sir. of Edgar Casey. And that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, <clears throat> that's after... Uh, and I know that you were saying that whenever they were down here, that if you think about uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, Western Kentucky is dirt roads. Uh, someone, even though they were six miles away, you might not go to Hopkinsville, but just like a couple times a year. Exactly. And that was to the circus and maybe to do some shopping, to buy some shoes for the winter. Because otherwise, Edgar and all of his friends went barefooted. Well, I, you also told a story uh, about uh, Edgar, his first trip to Hopkinsville. And for it just to be five, five and a half miles up the road here, Mm -hmm. That his first trip, he was well into his older age. I mean, he's nearly a grown man. Yes, when he made that trip, it was a dirt road, and he went with his daddy to pay the taxes on the county land, and of course to go to the circus. Well, the circus was all the world of that country boy because he had read and seen pictures of that wild animals, and now to be able to go to a program that had an array of all those animals, it's almost more than he could take in. <laughs> well, can you tell us a little bit about uh, one of the other stories that I got really intrigued that you told uh, was about how he, growing up, his grandfather was actually killed uh, in an accident. Yes, he was. It's an interesting story. When Edgar was three years old, he was on horseback with his daddy over at his grandfather, Tom Casey's farm. That's northeast of here, about a mile. Okay. And uh, the elder Casey, who was 51 at the time, went into the pond on horseback for the horse to get water. Well, something frightened the horse. It may have been a snake in the water or something. And the horse reared. When it reared, uh, Tom Casey fell off backward. The horse turned around and came down on Casey with mm -hmm. his hoofs mm -hmm. and drowned him right there. Oh. And a nearby neighbor was called to come and retrieve the body. And so Edgar was a sight, a witness all this. 
as he saw it all, it had to make an impression even on Shadow Three. Then he was present when his grandmother died. Uh, when he was about 14, he was with her when she died. And um, Edgar's grandfather, some claimed, had supernatural powers. At least he could see visions. He could talk to people who weren't present. And Edgar may have inherited that tendency from him. We don't know. But as a little boy, Edgar had imaginary playmates. And we go over to the woods, and these playmates would appear. And he would play with them, talk to them. And that puzzled the family. They couldn't figure this out. Mm -hmm. uh, but they didn't really question it. Uh, Edgar's parents were very supportive of this strange capability that he had. We sum it up this way. <clears throat> Edgar Casey had supernatural powers, psychic powers. We don't know exactly why. Edgar didn't know why. He wrestled for years <clears throat> trying to determine the source. He finally came to the conclusion that it was God-given and it was not his place to question it. And so he lived out his life committed to that line of thought. Yes, sir. And you know, it's interesting that I know you've, you've spoken on this before, uh, that um, he recognized that if, if this is supernatural, um, he wanted it to not be used for evil or bad. And uh, I think you, you mentioned that uh, while he was in one of his trances, some people tried to ask him who's winning horse races. Yes. When uh, <clears throat> Edgar came back to Hopkinsville, Edgar went to Bowling Green to live in 1902, worked in a photography studio. Uh, about uh, 1910, he came back to Hopkinsville and with two other men, Dr. Wesley Ketchum and A.D. No, who owned Hotel Latham, he entered into an agreement of the Psychic Reading Corporation. Mm -hmm. And they set him up in a first-class photograph studio, and he was to give readings. Uh, he did not charge for readings, but people sent money uh, as a donation uh, for their medical readings. He discovered that these two men were shysters and were taking the money. And he realized it because he began to suffer terrible headaches and couldn't figure what was wrong. And in a reading, he revealed that he was being taken advantage of. So he got loose from them. Uh, they sued him uh, for uh, not carrying out the agreement in their contract. Uh, it was settled out of court, and he was exonerated. But he had had enough of Hopkinsville. And so he left here and went to Alabama eventually settling in, in Selma, Alabama, where he continued as a photographer. And uh, then within a very few years comes the oil chapter, where he got interested in oil wells in Texas. That didn't pan out either. <clears throat> the men who were backing him were keeping secret where he said the oil was. They would have to dig somewhere else. Then when he was, out, he was out of the picture and back in Alabama, they dug on those sites where he said there was oil, and they struck it rich. But he was never a wealthy man monetarily. He accepted money people gave him, but he never asked for it. And uh, he died uh, in material wealth, a very poor man. But in uh, contributions, a wealthy man. Yeah, we. Uh, it seems like everywhere that uh, Edgar Casey went, uh, people were always trying to take advantage of him. Yes. And I guess, I guess his wife was one of the ones that kind of put a stranglehold on some of yes, that. Yes, because where the problem came was these other people would take advantage of him in a reading, so she started being present in all readings as his stenographer, and. Um, would not allow these men to take advantage of him. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't she a major that kind of lived uh, 
near here as his well? His mother was a major. His mother was a major. Yes. So uh, his wife, Gertrude, was at Evans, Evans in Hopkinsville. Okay. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm kin to Edgar through the Casey side and the major side, both. Oh, okay. Since his dad was a Casey, his mother was a major. My mother was a major. Once a year, oh, it, um, uh, is the Casey reunion still uh, a going no, thing? No, we had two of them. Okay. Uh, in 88, maybe three, in 88 and 89. The big one was in 88. And, uh, of course, I, I knew about this is whenever uh, I was dating Elizabeth Higgins. And the, mm-hmm. the Higgins family was related to the Casey family. Yes, and, yes. And, um, <laughs> and, but a uh, lot, of, lot of good history that you don't have to go to a D.C. to, to find. It's right here at home mm-hmm. and in our backyard. And we drive, you probably drive back past it every day. Yes, you do. The Cases moved here from Cumberland County, Virginia, settled near here in 1817, and have lived here ever since. Well, the, the, the interesting thing is, is uh, we, Joey and I talk all the time. Uh, we, we, we at least once a week, we have to have a, a what we call a production meeting where we actually go through stuff we want to talk about and mm-hmm. what our ideas are. Mostly it's his ideas because he's been in your class and mm-hmm. he learned a lot about the history of this area through your class. So, but I, it's, it's interesting. I live just uh, probably eight miles south of here on the Fett Road. Bennistown. Bennistown. Bennistown yeah. And I used to drive up and down the Fett Road a hundred times uh, and never turn my eyes to the right to even look over here at the Beverly Academy, and mm-hmm. to be able to come back to it, and I was, I was shocked that it was still here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had seen the general store, and I knew that that was still part of it. I didn't know it was Beverly. Joy mm-hmm. was the one that says, oh, that's Beverly. I went, yeah. no, that's just outside of Flat Lake. That's, that's <laughs> Christian County, right? We've talked a lot here, and we're going to go look at the museum. What should we look at at the museum and make sure we not miss when we go up there and look at it? Look at all the pictures. He was a photographer. Yes. I love pictures and collect them. And uh, as you'll see them on the wall back over there. And uh, to me, Edgar Casey did so much to record what places and people look like. Uh, by example, with this uh, yep. film that you're making, yes, sir. hopefully it will last. Yeah. And it will be an image of the three of us. Uh, into the future long after we're gone. That's what we're hoping. We, we, that's, a, that's a great way. It's a document mm-hmm. is what those pictures were. And he was about documenting time. He and, did. He documented time and place. And Joey always likes to refer to us as we're putting history for the people that are coming after us. Yes. And exactly everything that right. we do, if, if nobody picks up anything that we're pulling the people in, we're trying to pull in as many people as we can to get as much information because we, we don't, we're not that smart, but we, no. we, we want people to see what we missed as growing mm-hmm. up. Because if mm-hmm. I would have put more interest in 20 or 30, 35 we years ago, we waited until we were 50. We, wait, <laughs> we waited until after we were over 50 mm-hmm. before we got we started. So well, we're in the halfway part of our life. Yeah. We're going to live to be 100. So might as well start this mess. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of what Joey and I are doing is we go through our history. Anything, any place we go to, any places that take donations, we always try to give more. We always try to give back to the community. Uh, we may not be rich, that's but we may important. be able to. We may be able to keep some of that history still out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, very important for someone put all this stuff here for us, and uh, they they planted a seed, and mm-hmm. and um, you know they say that. Um, uh, a wise old man uh, plants an oak tree when they know they'll never get to enjoy sitting under the shade of it. But uh, future generations will. Yeah, that is awesome. Well, Miss Turner, I want to thank you and Chris did an outstanding job. Thank you. And I am. And when we wrap up here, I'm going to be taking pictures because I want this on the website, uh, and I want everybody to. Get in touch with the uh, Pinaral uh, Museum up in Hopkinsville, uh, Christian County, and see if, see about getting down here to see the uh, Beverly Academy. Casey, uh, I mean, Edgar You Casey, said March? March? March is whenever you have the... Edgar Casey Seminar. 
and anyone interested, just give me a call. My number is 270-498-1212. And there you go. And I'm going to tell you what, that is going straight to him. And so, and, and for it, and, and the schoolhouse sits on his property. So, Palmyra Road. Yes, yes. <laughs> Takes you to Palmyra. Alan asked me, where's this road at? Oh, William Turner, thank you so much for sitting down with us and discussing a little bit about the agriculture. Thank years. you so much. Thank it's you, a pleasure. Sir. Thank you, thank sir. You. To be with you both. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. I really much. appreciate you all coming. All right, sir. Awesome. All right, Joey. Well, uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, our trip down uh, memory lane there with uh, Mr. Turner. Uh, we uh, he he actually dis, uh, discussed a, a lot of the stuff that uh, you can find in a couple of books that we've used uh, to to learn more about uh, Edgar Casey himself. Uh, Edgar Casey, an American Prophet, which is by Sidney Kirkpatrick, and There Is a River, which is by Thomas Sugru. Now, Thomas Sugru was a good friend of Hugh, which was the son of Edgar Casey. So that's how, uh, and he was not a believer. So people would look at there is a river as being the, the one to go to. And uh, I read both of them. And I'm going to tell you the story. I, I went through uh, the Kirkpatrick uh, uh, one first, uh, American Prophet. But I'm learning more in depth uh, the how Edgar felt during the time when uh, in the book uh, There Is a River. Uh, he actually uh, was a deep man, and he cared what people thought of him. Mm-hmm. And so he, it, was, it was very interesting. And uh, Alyssa Keller uh, is going to take us down that memory here. Uh, so let's send it out to uh, the backdrop of the museum because... Uh, there's another place that you're going to want to look at the yeah. website. Uh, beautiful uh, display out there. Uh, so please get out to the uh, the Museum of Historica Hopkinsville and Christian County because that is a, they did a renovation during the pandemic, and it is phenomenal. It's very good. It's a great place to go. Let's go there now. And we're here with Alyssa Keller, and she is going to... Uh, Help us out. Look behind us here at this wonderful uh, display of Edgar Casey. Hands down, the most well-known person um, to date, we'll say, that's ever um, come out of uh, Christian County, Hopkinsville and Christian County. He was born in the southern part of the county, in a little town called Beverly at the time, um, on March 18th of 1877. And as a child, from everything I have uh, read and studied, um, was kind of a a unique kid, a little different. Um, the, he even had a nickname. They called him Old Man um, at church. He started going to church, to Liberty Christian Church, kind of on his own, and then, like, brought his family with him. Mm-hmm. And he was the one of the ones that, like, took care of putting out communion and was, like, like kind of a caretaker, even as a kid. Um, so had this kind of, um, uh, like, this persona that extended past, like, this little kid-ness, I would say. Um, he also had some interesting abilities, even as a little kid and luckily was surrounded by uh, loved ones and people in his family that um, encouraged and fostered this and didn't uh, convince him that he was crazy or that he shouldn't be seeing things or whatever it might be. So um, there's stories of him in the woods when he would um, see fairies. There's a lot written on fairies in the Casey work and um, how like, According to all of the readings that Casey did and all of the depth that they go into, um, that we all can do this stuff. It's just we have to be like our consciousness has to be raised to that um, place. So he was exceptional. um, But what he was doing, everybody else could do if you um, took the time and were aware and um, conscious of what was around you. So Edgar would spend time in the woods. He would see fairies. Um, He um, also had what they called the little people. Um, and the little people were like imaginary friends would be the way I would describe them. But these weren't just like imaginary friends. They had full backstories and he would play with these little people in the garden and on the farm. And one book, it's There's a River, the um, biography that was written on Edgar in um, 1942. So when he was even still alive, um, it was a, like a. I don't know that the New York Times had a bestseller list then, but it was like a bestseller when Edgar was still living even. Um that his mother could see him on occasion. Now, I mean, and this is coming from somebody, I shouldn't admit this, but like I had imaginary friends when I was a kid, but I didn't really see them. I just, I think 
wanted to talk to them and I named them after soft drinks, which is weird, but (laughs) whatever. Um, But these, if you read enough about Edgar um, and and about like soul development and how souls uh, come and go and have soul groups and group together um, based on previous soul experiences, that these were souls that he had been with before that were there to kind of comfort him and get him going uh, that hadn't made it into our plane yet. This stuff is, it's deep. It yeah. is. It is deep. When I started working at the, you know, local history museum, I did not know all the things I was going to need to know. And it's been really fascinating and fun. So Edgar grows up like this and he um, has a couple of health issues. He was hit in the head with a ball at one point and had a concussion. That's what it really sounds like. Um, and was real sick from it. And while um, he, he finally, I think, told his mother what, needed to happen it was like a poultice that needed to be made to be to put on his head and it and it cured him and i mean this is like a you know 10 year old kid like how did he know what to, how to do this so um, <laughs> i think that he was considered a little strange and a little odd but um you know he's down in a small area small community everybody knows him everybody kind of knows what to expect from him everybody knows his family and so he it's Everything I've read sounds like that until he's in his like mid 20s he kind of goes back and forth like mm-hmm. like he recognizes that he can do things other people can't, but doesn't necessarily want to be able to do things other right. people can't. One story um, uh, about him being out in the country and in the woods is that an angel came to see him. And that's why actually why we have an angel up on the on the wall here. Um, that an angel came to visit him and asked him what he wanted to do. Like he had these special powers and went, how did he want to use them? And he said he wanted to help people, especially children. And overwhelmingly, if he... Uh, if he used this this skill this talent this um gift he had to help people it did it worked um he sometimes people say he never got paid for his readings and he never he never relied on that payment but he would be paid for things here and there but if he ever tried to go down some other avenue and tried to like make money it didn't work it just really didn't work and so as long as he was dedicated to helping people and to being true to himself and to his beliefs and um he he did really remarkable amazing work they called him readings over time it took a long time to figure out what he could do and i mean i just can't imagine how hard that had to been on him so he grows up in beverly his family moves to town when he's like in his late teens and he starts working at a bookstore in town and he loses his voice and doesn't lose his voice kind of but like loses his voice vocal paralysis really um and it, this is like always the story when it comes to Edgar Casey readings, um, it, health readings at least is, um, then you go to see the doctor and then you go to all the specialists and nobody has an answer. And then you get an Edgar Casey reading, you know, like it's <laughs> like, he's it, your last resort for a while at least. So he finally, um, he has been to all the specialists. No one knows what's going on. People in town apparently said, I mean, he like walked around with a little pad of paper and a pencil to communicate. And then, um, at a hip, at a show at Holland's Opera House on Main Street in Hoptown, um, he saw a hypnotist and he went up and was hypnotized. And while he was hypnotized, he could speak. And like everybody there knew that Edgar Case couldn't talk. He was, he had been like everyone's favorite bookstore clerk at Hopper Brothers Bookstore. Once he lost his voice, he had to kind of find different employment. And that's when he started working as a photographer because he could work in the dark room Mm -hmm. and he trained as a photographer because he didn't have to talk to people. Mm -hmm. Um, So people in town knew Edgar and they knew that he didn't, um, he couldn't talk. And so when he goes up and is hypnotized and he can speak while he's under hypnosis, I mean, like the room's astounded, you know, I'm so glad they didn't make him like cluck like a dog or something. (laughs) Um, This is back when like hypnosis was like uh, considered a medical treatment. It wasn't just uh, entertainment. They call it mesmerism a lot. Anyway, um, but when he came out of the hypnotic trance, he couldn't talk again. And there was a man there that night named Dr. Al Lane. And Dr. Lane had done some like correspondence course and was an osteopath. And he had like some uh, buddies that he, you know, like communicated with who had been studying hypnosis. So he like started corresponding like, what can we do with this guy? So he starts working one-on-one with Edgar. And overwhelmingly when Edgar was in a conscious waking state, he couldn't talk. When he was in a sub, you know, in a subconscious in a hypnotic state or trance, he could talk again. And then he'd wake up, same thing. So finally, they, I think through some guidance um, with Dr. Lane, it's like, well, 
ask whatever voice is coming out of him when he's in this trance what needs to happen and see what the voice says. Yeah. And so that's what they do. And so at a house on West 7th Street um, with Edgar's parents in the room, they say, you know, like, what is wrong? And so it's, I think it was the blood flow to the vocal cords or something had been hindered. And um, the voice coming out of Edgar, and I'll say that because I don't know that it was Edgar. Right. If it's <laughs> the a blood source, flow, it's, the source is what it's, right. it's often refer, referred to um, in any of the writings and about Edgar. Um, it said to restore the blood flow. Oh, it said to loosen his collar, and then to tell his body to restore the blood flow to his throat, mm-hmm. and then that his throat would swell and get red, and when the swelling went down, um, to wake him up. Okay. No, to, when the swelling went down to return the blood flow to normal and then to wake him up. So they did all of that. They said everything went just like they said. Mm-hmm. When he woke up, he coughed and he coughed a little blood up and then he could talk again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's some speculation and some, or speculations, a big word, but um, there's some thought that um, he had this gift and he wasn't using it. And so his voice. Like if you're not going to use it, yeah, we're it's gonna like a muscle it. Yeah, that you're not gonna. using. And so then he started working with Al Lane and started doing readings for people um, and trying to kind of figure out this is the time. He ends up leaving, moving from Hopkinsville and lives in Bowling Green, opens a photography studio there. Um, and this is when, you know, like buddies would uh, put him in a trance and like poke him with needles and stuff <laughs> to see if he'd flinch. I mean, like they right. don't know what's going on. Right. So it takes a while to really figure out the process that needs to be um, respected and gone through. He needed to have two people at least in the room with him. When he's in a trance, he's saying all these things. This voice is coming out of him and providing medical information that is intense. Yeah. These The readings read almost like an autopsy. I mean, they are going through every uh, physiological system in your body. Um, and so somebody had to be there to write it down. If he was doing a reading for someone, that person, he needed to know where they were. They, It didn't matter where they were. He just needed to know where. And that some readings start out with comments on, like somebody could be hundreds of miles away, but comments on what they could see out their window or what pajamas, you know, what they're wearing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so something. Almost like he would go there. Yeah, like his consciousness yeah. would go there. Um, some of the, the if, uh, it's like, there's no way to explain this, but some of the ways it's been explained is that he was moving from a conscious through subconscious to a super conscious state where he was just like in tune with everything. He's often called the father of holistic medicine because when he would give these health readings, so of the more than 14,000 readings, about over 9,000 are health readings or category mm-hmm. or categorized as physical readings mm-hmm. or health readings because he did readings on um, what they would call um, life readings which are looking into past lives. He did like mechanical readings and technological readings. He did business reading. He did lots of different kinds of things, but the bulk of them are the health readings or the physical readings, I think is the official way to put them, but um, called holistic medicine because it was not like, um, okay, well, you're sick and you're going to need to take this. But no, 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 no. It was a, a, a whole body, mind, and spirit approach to mm-hmm. health. Um, someone might, I mean, like meditation might be part of your recommended um, treatment. Um, massage therapy, osteopathic and like chiropractic adjustments. Machines. One I saw where a person broke their kneecap. Oh, yeah. And he had That's to. That's a lockdown story. Yep. And he told how to drill a hole, drill a hole and put a nail they always say it was like, yeah, I've like, always hold it, heard it described as looking like a roofing nail because it yeah. had a flat head and it was made, it was here. George Dalton was the man yeah. right around 1905, I think. I may be a little off on that. Uh, um, that he, again, he'd seen all the specialists and he was never going to walk again, you know, um, and got a reading from Casey and they, it was a pin. They put a pin in his knee. Yeah. yeah. And the and pin it, was this nail made at like, machine shop. You know, when you think of like a, a four penny nail, the weight of the the iron is like, uh, it, his detailed readings were down to the weight of the metal oh, sure. in the nail uh, to use, um, and exactly the the angle and and where to drill into the kneecap is, uh, so it can't be explained. No. And uh, there, it's it's supernatural. Uh, um, Mr. Turner was saying it's probably the best term for it. He didn't know where this power is coming from. He uh, just wanted to use the powers 
to do good things. To do good things. And it didn't work right if he was ever manipulated to use it for not good things. Well, yeah. So when he was actually, so he bounced around for a little while. And from uh, right around 1910 to about 1912, he was back in Hopkinsville. And he lived here. And he he and three other men created the Hopkinsville Psychic Reading Corporation. And it was um, he and his, his father. Um, a guy named Dr. Wesley Ketchum, and who was a, a homeopathic physician mm-hmm. in town, and then A.D. No, and Mr. No owned the Hotel Latham, um, and uh, Ketchum had an office across the street from the Hotel Latham. Fun fact: on the second floor above the Dalton Brick Company's office, George Dalton was the one who had the pen put in his name. Mm. Anyway, um, but part of the the agreement was that they would also set Edgar up with a photography studio. So Edgar was giving; he was a psychic diagnostician. In Hoptown, um, and then had operated a photography studio for a couple of years. Now, this is early on, though, in this process, so they don't really know what all he needs. Um, it, it, well, he doesn't know what all he needs, and he needs the, these two people in the room, one to write down everything he says, and then one to lead him through the reading. Because overwhelmingly, when he's in a trance, he, um, he only, the source only answers the questions it's given. It's not just like, no, I'm in a trance and I'm going to tell you everything. No, right. no, no. I mean, it's very point. So they called it a conductor. And so someone had to conduct the reading. And Edgar would lay down. Um, he would put his hands over his solar plexus. He would loosen, I think, his his collar and his shoelaces. And I think maybe even his um, the cuffs on his sleeves. And he would lay his um, hands over. And they said that you had to watch him. And when his eyelids started to flutter, that you had to um, say, like, start the prompt. Which was like, you have before you the body of... Alyssa Keller or whatever. Um, and if he didn't, he'd go to sleep. He'd be out. And so um, what they had, what again, it was this process of figuring all this out. And when he was here and working specifically with Dr. Ketchum, sometimes Ketchum was the only one there. Right. And so Ketchum would put him in the trance and be the one to take down all the information. So like there were no other witnesses. And Edgar started getting really bad headaches. And so he decided he was going to start following up with the people who were sending letters. Because that's what people do. They'd send a letter, talk... It, he really didn't even need to know what was going on because it didn't mean much to him. Um, but, you know, they'd send a letter with their um, appeal and they would, you know, correspond, set up a time and know where this person is. And um, he, Edgar, started following up and people weren't getting the responses. And so then he figured out that Ketchum was putting him under with nobody else around. And instead of doing what he was supposed to do and what Edgar had agreed on, he was asking him about, you know, like horse races and gambling and things like that. And it made Edgar physically, like, ill. Mm. One of my favorite stories, early, early reading, he gave for a little girl in town. Um, Her name was Amy Dietrich. And um, this was one he worked with Aline um, for. And Amy was about five years old. I think that's about right. And she had, you know, grown up and had been a, you know, progressed in a very kind of, like, normal pattern. um, And then started to regress. And her family couldn't, nobody, specialists couldn't figure it out. And so they bring Edgar in. And it, it, she had fallen, getting out of a carriage, and it wrenched her spine, and it caused scar tissue that was preventing blood flow to go to her brain. And so the problem was, so osteopathic treatments, adjustments, were what were um, were her treatment. Um, or it, yeah. And Dr. Lane could do them, so he did them. And then Edgar gave a follow-up re- reading, and he didn't do them right, so he did them again. And then <laughs> the third time, he got them right. And within days, this little girl was like, calling her mother by, you know, calling her mama, you know, like, and she ended up growing up, went to college, I mean, lived a very full life. Mm-hmm. Okay, the reading, I thought, the fact that they did the reading and the adjustment, without the follow-up reading, they wouldn't have known. They probably would have thought that, oh, this is all bunk and didn't work. Right. Um, so it was the, the long dream to have a hospital um, so that he could do the readings and then have the treatments done all under one roof. And um, he did that. It's unfortunate that he had to go to Virginia to do that. Well, it it is unfortunate, but um, that's where he would give readings on himself. Mm -hmm. And the readings for Edgar Casey as a, as a soul um, said that Virginia beach, Virginia was the place to go. Now, did he establish the, is it the A-R-E? He did. It wasn't the first thing he did. At first, it was the Casey Hospital um, right around 1928, and it didn't last very long. Um, His big funding came out of stockbrokers in New York City. There were two brothers, um, Morton and Edwin Blumenthal. So I think the Blumenthals were a little upset that they were not warned more heavily about the stock market crash. Um, 
1929. But in yeah, October of yeah. 29. But they uh, again patterns, and I think I think some of those readings did point to and, patterns of a downfall in the you know. But anyway, so um, with the stock market crash and the um, the head doctor at the um, hospital was a man named Dr. Thomas House. And Dr. House was from Springfield, Tennessee, but he married a woman from Hoptown. Um, Carrie um, Salter was her name. Carrie was Gertrude's aunt. Gertrude Casey, Gertrude right. Evans Casey is Edgar's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gertrude's mother and Carrie are sisters, right? But Gertrude's mama is the oldest and Carrie's the youngest, which makes Carrie and Gertrude. They're close in age. Like aunt yeah. and yeah, aunt Almost and like niece, cousins. But, but they're what like, they were... right, but they're more like sisters. Yeah. And they were kind of raised that way. And Carrie... I stand by that. Carrie's my favorite character in the whole story of the whole thing. And it would not, none of this would have happened without Carrie. Well, Carrie marries Dr. House. And um, she, when the hospital's established in the 20s, they pick up and leave Hopkinsville and move to Virginia Beach to run the hospital. So Dr. House is going to run, be the head doctor. Um, Carrie is the head nurse and like takes care of, um, of, of the patient's with her husband mm-hmm. and it was in september i think of 29 so just ahead of the stock market crash dr house died and when dr house died his wife carrie moved back home moved back here and so that that rug had kind of been pulled out mm-hmm. um and so then um they kind of shifted uh, focus from the hospital to it had another name first it was like the national association of investigators or something <laughs> that then grew into the association for research and enlightenment the are um which i think dates to 1931 so edgar would have been you know the founding of this yeah. um and he would then continue to do readings much in the way he'd done before without the ability of immediate treatment on site but continued to give readings and he did these uh, people would send him they would come see him uh, and but it's in mail too um and it was after there's a river was published um book was written by a man named thomas segru and segru had gone to college i think he'd gr- gone to school with hugh lynn casey edgar's oldest son and thomas would like segru like lived with the casey's for a while and he wrote about edgar and if you've not read There is a River, do it. Stop everything and read it. Um, I've read it like three times now. Because okay. every time it's like you know a little bit more to like know a little bit more. Yeah. And then they, um, so this gets published in 42, World War II's going on, and like mail was coming into Casey by the truckload. And this, at this point, again, Edgar gives readings for himself. And when he's giving, like readings for Edgar are telling him to only do two readings a day. He was given like nine and I yeah. can't it, make it. Yeah, he it wore himself out. I think is what it was. It, it, he went for uh, quality over quantity of years there at the end. And I mean, I think in a real kind of beautiful way, um, tried to help as many people right. as he could while right. he could. Yeah. And um, so he gave readings up. He had a stroke in um, the fall of 1944, and he died in January of 45. And what really was wild is that his wife died three months later. Wife died three months later. And that's on, that's like, why was was she ill as well? I don't know. I don't know. I think I mean you hear that sometimes with yeah. like couples that are so close. Um, and I mean they had built a life together. And to know he was so nationally known in oh, yeah. the 30s and 40s when there's not internet and oh, God, and, no. and um, I mean <laughs> to go hey. Yes, I saw something that went viral here. Well, and Gertrude um, had to share Edgar with the world in a lot of ways. And she was not a huge supporter early on. Well, I know whenever she, what was it, after the death of their first, or the second child they had after that. Well, yeah. and actually laying back there on that table, or on that couch, it's a reproduction of the couch that Edgar gave readings on. This was used in a movie that um, our friends, um, Dr. Greg and Laura Little did their um, Edgar Casey researchers specifically about the readings about Atlantis and they are going to find it and it's fascinating but they use this uh, this couch um, but uh, we have a copy of one of Gertrude's readings that was done in 1901 I think on January 1st um, when she had tuberculosis and right. it was done in Hopkinsville so she gets tuberculosis and th- that's when she finally she gets incredibly sick like near deathbed sick before she agrees to let her husband do a reading for her mm-hmm. Not 1901, it's 1911, I apologize. Um, And uh, she's pregnant and she has tuberculosis. And in the process, I mean, how awful. 
he goes into this trance. He doesn't remember what he says when he comes out. And so when he wakes up, he finds out that he's given that she's going to be okay and the baby's going to be born and the baby's going to die. The baby's not going to live. And so, um, and that's exactly what happened. But he mm. prescribed through the reading a treatment for the tuberculosis and she followed it and she got, she was cured. She was healed. Mm. Um, and that back there is a follow-up actually reading. And um, part of the treatment involves a very, very small amount of heroin. So one of the uh, things that I, uh, that's right behind your head there, the pit game. Oh, yeah. Uh, I had read a little bit on the pit game that he invented and then sent it and then they robbed him of it. Basically, Parker Brothers did. Yeah. So this was when he was living in Bowling Green. It's right around 1904, I believe. We have a, um, a very old version of Pitt in the cabinet. Um, it, it was not donated to us. I actually found this on eBay of all places. <laughs> um, but it was it says patent pending. So it's like as old as it can get. But he and um, one of his buddies that I think was a Hot Town man too, um, developed this game. And part of it was that Edgar, he just, he like knew things. Went, so he could go in these trances, sure, but he just like, like knew things and he could sense things um, even when he was awake. He, they say that he could see auras around people and he could tell like how someone was feeling and if they were in a good mood or if things were maybe not as good, you know, from that. And he um, was terrible at cards because he knew what was happening all the time. He was not who you wanted to play cards with, right? <laughs> um, and so he developed this pit game and it's a like a commodities trading game is kind of what it is um and it moved so fast that he couldn't keep up with it and so oh. he could actually he could play without like having to be like i'm cheating i know <laughs> what your hand I know, is i know what everyone's <laughs> hands are so i fold or whatever you know um you're gonna win yeah <laughs> so he developed pit and then he sold it it was like big like one of his buddies like hand drew all the cards and like i said it's commodities trading so you're trying to get like a whole handful of corn or rye or barley or wheat or whatever and there's a bull and a bear in them anyway there, it's, <laughs> there's a bell involved it's really fun um and it's funny how many people especially from like the midwest know this game i didn't know it until i started working here and like have no idea where it came from but he um i guess you know was convinced to offer it to like a big manufacturer and i think he got paid like six dollars yeah oh my it was and we, you can buy pit in our museum shop right now i mean like it is still available and he um what 150 don't go on later. ebay come to hoppiesville yeah come on <laughs> and um uh yeah if you want like a very old uh the a nostalgic vintage version we don't have those but um the uh you can still get them now, 115 years later, and he got paid, I think, like the equivalent of $6. That's horrible. <laughs> That's horrible. So, so because you can see that, these are, um, we have these throughout the museum, though. These are weird and wonderful um, exhibit. And so um, we thought that was a kind of a weird and a wonderful story about Hoptown. Um, everything about Edgar Casey is a little weird and more than wonderful. So he's like our biggest weird and wonderful. A lot of the things he did was list. weird. And uh, it was... Everybody, what whenever he was the uh, in church as a young child, as the as you referred to him, the old man earlier, uh, when they found out that he could have this psychic ability, they kind of pushed him out mm -hmm. and kind of just blackballed him. I say with the uh, um, like the Bell Witch, old John Bell got yeah. excommunicated. They kind of did that to him, and it took a while to get the uh, the good favor to get him back into the church again. Well, I'll say. Nothing hurts my feelings more. Um, it seems crazy to think my feelings get hurt for Edgar Casey, but they do. Um, and nothing hurts my feelings more than when people think or have this assumption that he was doing the work of the devil or that he was not I mean, a devout man. Because he, um, when he was about 10 years old, he decided he was going to read the Bible through every year of his life. Yes. And from cover to cover. And when he was 10, he had to make up time. So he read it 10 times. Yes. Maybe not all in one year. I don't know how long it took him to get caught up, but then proceeded to read the Bible every year of his life. He was like, he taught Sunday school. He did some program called the Christian Endeavor, which was part of the Disciples of Christ Church. Um, mm -hmm. He attended that in Hopkinsville and when he was in Alabama. Um, he attended a Presbyterian church when he was in Virginia. Um, and it, I mean, he was like a remarkable um like say devout man very spiritual very religious and had a really hard time here and there of like kind of reconciling within himself how these things could all go together yeah. um and i i got i'm sure got called a freak he was arrested a few times for practicing medicine without a license and then also you know being 
considered doing the work of the devil. And and they played a joke or a trick on him at uh, one of the, I think it was Ketchum as well, when he went to uh, Ketchum School and they had opened up the door between uh, between classrooms. He was doing a reading. I think I remember this, that he went up there to do a reading or for the class and they opened the door and the professor on the other side, they thought that he was going to denounce them basically because it was a, a trick but the guy came over of uh, the professor came over and says whatever he's doing and that's a hundred percent correct of what he just said and then they he came up out of the trance and they asked him about his background and he said i i don't know what i said right he doesn't so basically they 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 had to use the documentation of all the stuff that he had done in order to kind of let everybody know, hey, this guy's for real. Mm-hmm. And he, he's really good. And the aura, if you look behind us the whole time, you've seen the aura behind us. Uh, Casey's aura keeps changing. Yes, that was one of our like uh, kind of fun, whimsical things we did, is to have Edgar's aura um, kind of yeah, fade in and out. If you, I don't know if you can see Gertrude. You can barely see Gertrude on Gertrude's this Gertrude's on the other wall, but she only shines kind of a, a whitish blue because um, that's like the most pure aura, and that was um, that was kind of to signify that, that she's his angel, you know. And so I loved it. Um, we made her a little different. And there will be pictures on the uh, website, uh, so don't look at the website and think that you've gone through the, the museum. Please oh. don't. We're Come just here. in the back corner right now. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that we have here, so Edgar was a photographer um, and took a ton of pictures all throughout his life, but he took a ton of pictures of Hopkinsville. And so the wall are photographs. There's one exception of him uh, that he didn't take, but they're all pictures that Edgar Casey took in Hopkinsville uh, right around, you know, the turn of the century. And so you get some Hoptown history through the eyes of Edgar Casey, There's a picture of Teddy Roosevelt on the wall that Teddy Roosevelt came here um, 1901, I believe, when he was campaigning for vice president mm-hmm. and spoke. And there's a picture of him getting out of a carriage that Edgar Casey took. So one of my friends was in here not too long ago. She's like, that looks like Teddy Roosevelt. I was like, it is Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> so um, anyway, so that's what the wall of pictures is, is. They're all pictures he took. Thank you so much for allowing us to come in here and do this. And we would love to be able to come back. We want to support Hopkinsville. Uh, come in to the museum, donate to the museum. Come experience the museum. Uh, I, I have the heart of a giver yes. and, and donate to the museum. Get your employer to donate to the museum when, you, when you're like, hey, what, what should we donate to? The museum. Mm-hmm. And that way they can keep making it look as wonderful as it looks today. You're going to like it. You're going to be proud. Yes. Thanks. All right. Uh, well, Alyssa Keller was full of information and uh, get great out, interview. Yeah, get out to get out to the museum and uh, meet with her. I want to go again. Oh, oh, we are going again. Uh, so uh, you know, me and my wife had talked about uh, some of these places that you and I joy. We go, and she's interested uh, after watching these uh, podcasts that she wants to be uh, wants to be involved as well. So she wants to go out and look at some of these places that we've already been. Uh, and I can't wait to get out there, but we are looking at the museum and going back out there. But the, the complete people out there, you want to go see their team. You want to talk to them about everything in the museum. Uh, a lot of updates that they've done. So if you hadn't been to the museum in two years, you need to go back out there. Uh, Very knowledgeable. The folks out there, like you'll go up to a display and, and you know, we saw the, uh, not just the displays and, and heard the stories about Edgar Casey, the Sleeping Prophet, but we also uh, they have uh, the history of, of uh, Western Kentucky being developed, and uh, what became uh, the U.S. Tobacco Company uh, or the American Tobacco Company, and uh, the revolt of the local farmers. It's going to be one of our future episodes, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you're going to want to get out to the museum. But in the meantime, I, I'm I'm glad that you guys followed us here and you got to hear these great stories. We like getting those great stories from the folks that know them. Like us on social media, share us on social media. Uh, We're on every podcast app, we're on YouTube. If you wanna watch the YouTube video of us live, uh, we're not much to look at, but you get to see something that that you missed. 
uh, if we're if we're uh, um, uh, trying to do the shape of how big a bucket was. <laughs> you get to miss you, you, you miss our shining moment uh, if you don't you see us on YouTube because that's the that's our Michael Bay one shining moment. <laughs> we pull Michael Bay out of the old. Uh, you don't want to listen to one shining moment no. and not see the highlights of the NCAA tournament. You want to watch. Yeah, because that's where all the interesting stuff happens. So, so that's what we do. Don't don't miss out. Uh, YouTube is a great uh, outlet for us. Uh, a lot of things to come for this year. So uh, again, thank you. Happy New Year, 2022. It's going to be hard to write that on on your checks and 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 documents now. So uh, start writing March. dash 22 dash 22. <laughs> Just start writing it now. Uh, uh, but be kind to one another, and we'll see you guys soon. Love you.